Good. We are in Hebrews chapter 13. We're looking at one verse today, verse 17, and that only in part, because there is so much here that we need to mine and so many practical stuff for us to, um, to know and to apply. So we're going to take our time through this and, uh, Lord willing, finish 17 next time. As you're turning, let me say that we are forced by our text this morning to consider the importance of submission, and not in the context of being a wife. So those of you who are wives can relax today, although not too much. In case you didn't know, submission is not just a woman's problem. Every Christian is called to submit to authorities over them, whether it's government or employers, landlords, teachers, whomever. Biblical submission is a biblical doctrine, and it's good for us because it helps us to understand and to know how we should function both in society and, most importantly, in the church. So I want to stress function with you when I talk about the whole idea of submission. Function is very important. I say that because there are those who bristle at submission, submission of any kind, that often they are, and that is because they often make the mistake or equate it, submission that is, with some inferiority of personhood. Inferiority of personhood. What I mean by that is that those who submit to others are somehow admitting that they are less important as a person to those that they submit to. And that thinking is totally foreign to the New Testament, and as far as God is concerned, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? There's no one righteous, not one, and the wages of sin is the same for every person, that is, spiritual death. God is no respecter of persons. He gives no special treatment to anyone. All need to come to him for salvation through the work of Christ alone. And all those who do, the Bible says, are one in Christ. That's right. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, right? All are the same in Christ and are accepted before God. It's very important that we understand that. <clears throat> At the same time, there are distinctions that God has made, and they are made pure, they are purely functional distinct distinctions. For example, husbands are the head of their homes, and their wives are to submit to their authority. Paul calls children to obey parents and honor them, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with them, and they may live long on the earth. God ordained government, and no matter how corrupt it may get, he calls all Christians to submit to government, unless, of course, it becomes sin to do so. When it comes to the church, God has ordained the functioning of it around elders, a plurality of godly men to shepherd each local church. They are Christ's under-shepherds, and he commands members of the local church to submit to their authority and to their oversight. What makes submission difficult in any one of these contexts, and the church is no exception, is when those in functional authority lord themselves 
over those under their oversight. And that's what makes submission very difficult. The Apostle Peter set the record straight for the way that these men are to shepherd, exhorting them in 1 Peter 5 to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to their charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. You know this passage. It's a wonderful passage. Brings out the, the shepherding quality of the pastor and the elder. Now, there are a lot of bad leaderships running local churches, and their oversight usually falls in one of two extremes on a spectrum. Either they're too permissive, people-pleasers who give their members what they want by compromising the word so that they will remain popular and be comfortably supported. Or they're power-hungry and prideful men who want to be recognized and appreciated. So they strong-arm the direction of the church to ensure that everything goes the, the way, exactly the way that they want it to go. Both actually wind up conducting ministry on their own strength, compromising the truth, and fall outside of Peter's characterization of eagerness and willingness and shepherding. Neither is biblical, neither is good for the church, and sound members of, of the church with leadership gone bad would be right to confront them humbly and demand that they step away from the office until they get straightened out or actually step down and be replaced with men who are qualified and called to the office. That's a very tricky kind of process. Be that as it may, it's, it is such an important matter that the local church does not allow a rogue leadership to thrive that if they are unable to dismiss them, really the members should leave that local church. And I say that guardedly, because I am a local church guy. But they should leave. And that's how serious a matter this is. Now we've arrived at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, a verse that forces us to consider the specific dynamic between membership and their leadership. In this case, enough members in this particular first century Jewish Christian church, made it a habit to stay away, basically leave and not show up, because they, because they didn't, um, they didn't, or I should say they didn't leave because this church leadership became a corrupt fixture, as we just mentioned, often happens. No, not at all. Actually, quite the contrary. They were escaping a godly leadership, that shepherds, shepherded soundly. That's right. This leadership was actually the legacy that had been left by the church founding leaders or elders who had gone home to be with Christ and that the writer spoke very highly of back in verse 7. These founding elders put this congregation in the capable hands, capable care of this new leadership that they themselves trained, and that the writer actually heartily recommends here in verse 17. By all impressions, they are a caring, sound, biblically, biblical plurality of elders that love God and love these people who, 
who, who comprise, rather, the first century church. And yet the many uh, of these members that we're talking about couldn't get away fast enough. What a twist. Couldn't get away fast enough. How could that possibly be? A godly leadership running from them? Well, the answer to, that que- to the question is in our text as we make our way through it in really two parts. Now, today we're going to deal only with the first part, which looks at one of two commands in verse 17. Next time, in part two, we'll look at the second command. So let's consider the first, and I might summarize it this way. Very simply, submit to local church leadership because they are accountable to God for you. Submit to local church leadership because they are accountable to God for you. That's in verse 17, the first sentence. It's directed to the church members, not to leaders, and it commands them and all members of all sound churches to relate biblically to their godly leadership. Now, the first sentence of this verse and the one that we're dealing with today begins with a command to members that is clear and non-negotiable. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey your leaders and submit to them. I want you to notice the emphasis that the writer puts on the members' need to receive the oversight and shepherding of their leaders. He says, obey them and submit to them. Now, the Greek word translated obey here really means to pursue. means to pursue. And in the passive form, it means to be persuaded. To be persuaded. What the writer is saying is that the members should be persuaded in their own minds that these elders are worthy to listen to. The Greek word translated submit is found only here in the New Testament, and it means exactly what you think it does. It means yield to authority. So when you put the two words together, it reinforces the idea that when we're convinced in our own minds that our local church leaders provide us with teaching and application from Scripture and direction for our spiritual lives that is biblical and reliable, then we must yield to it. We must obey them. The writer uses a word for leaders here that is actually a word that is used for royal leadership in secular writings of the first century, but the writer does, doesn't have in mind the secular authorities, although we are well aware of Scripture's command to submit to secular authorities as well, to government, unless, of course, it's sin to do so. But rather, he is referring to men who lead in the church. This is also the way that Luke uses the word in Acts 15.22 when referring to leading men among the brethren. You remember at the Antioch church, Paul was among them. And the Holy Spirit chose them for the work of ministry. So while secular leaders and spiritual leaders both exercise authority and lead, and we're to submit to both, spiritual leaders shepherd souls, and they guide in the area of life and godliness. Very different. Very different than secular leaders. And it's their authority that we need to yield to when we're fully persuaded in our minds that their instruction and their guidance are godly. So why should Christians submit to the instruction and spiritual direction 
of elders of a local church anyway? Why is that? Well, that's a good question, and it's one that perhaps non-Christians who, who know you and who know that you're devoted to the local church and local church ministry may very well ask you, since they, they have been conditioned, I think, in our day to resist anyone who tries to tell them how to live. And so they're going to ask you that question. Are you prepared to answer it? They might ask you, in spite of the, the blind obedience from half the country to unsubstantiated pandemic mandates, right? They still maintain their fierce independence. And they want to know why Christians would ever submit themselves to a group of men who would tell them how to live. Well, the reason the writer gives is plain enough. It's because these local church elders keep watch over your souls as those who give an account. That's the rest of the, uh, the, the sentence that we're going to consider today, and it gives us the reason. There are actually two important parts to this reason, and I want to focus your attention on the second one first. The second one first, that is that these pastors of this first century church are worthy of their congregation, congregation submission because they minister to them as those who will give an account. As those who give an account. And though it's not stated, it's assumed that God is the one, of course, that they'll have to answer to at the end of time, since it's his word that they live and shepherd by. So the manner in which these pastors shepherd is with an expectation that they will have to answer to God for their flock, for what they've done. Now we know that all Christians will have to give an account for how they manage their time, their converted life, and the message that God has entrusted to them, right? Paul says so in Romans chapter 14. In verse 12, he says, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. In fact, all unbelievers who rejected the work of Christ and decide to go it alone, trusting in their own works, will also have to stand before God someday, only to find out that their works, of course, were not good enough. Jesus, in fact, warns of this in Matthew 12, verse 36. He says, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account of it in the day of judgment. But let's not get too far afield. We're talking about local church elders. What's so great about being in the care of men who know that someday they have to give an account to God for the way they shepherd. Well, these men, the writer says, do what they do for you because they have to answer to God. And that makes really all the difference. There are all different reasons why we do what we do, why people do what they do. Some of the reasons are good, some of the reasons are bad, but I would say that the ultimate reason, the one that really trumps them all, is the fact that someday they have to answer to a higher authority. And they will be accountable to that authority for how they behaved and how they spoke and how they carried on. It's no less true of godly elders, no less true of all Christians. So when you submit to a, a group of men called elders in a local church, you should, because of the way they minister, and the way they minister is with the full confidence that they will have to answer God for what they do. 
you can be sure in that case that they're going to teach you only God's truth. They're going to minister for God's approval and for your good. And I might add, whether their shepherding pleases anyone or not, that really makes no difference. You cannot make it your goal to be a people pleaser and expect to please God at the same time. It doesn't work that way. Godly elders please God, and they're, they're not going to compromise on that, even if pleasing God angers their members. God's ways are not our ways, right? We know that. And from our human point of view, we, we, uh, his ways are, are not only different than ours, but often they are embarrassing, difficult, illogical, sometimes even harmful and disastrous, making the situation even worse for us, right? from a human point of view. So many Christians, including pastor elders of local churches, will then opt to go their own way. They're much like the disobedient Israelites in Ezekiel 33. Do you remember them? Even though God gave them sound instruction from Ezekiel, they were convinced that, they, that if they listened to God's message and do what he says, it would actually put them at a disadvantage so they opted to go their own way, and they wound up dying. God said in verse 17, Your people say, the way of the Lord is not just, but it's their way that's not just. Well, whenever Christians come to the wrong conclusion that God's plain will will actually put them at a disadvantage in life, you know that their hearts are motivated by sin. Either selfishness and pride take over, or they fear man rather than God, and they go their own way. But loyal Christians who love Christ and want to please him will do what Paul commands in Ephesians 5. He says, be very careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Understand what the Lord's will is, implication, and do it. This is especially true of godly leadership. They will be careful how they shepherd. They will act wisely and understand the will of God in the, in the area of oversight. And they will lead their churches by God's truth because they have to give an account to God for their ministry. And according to the writer, that's part of the reason, then, that we should submit to godly elders. Now, before we move on to a second part of the reason for submitting to godly, godly elders, we, we would do well to remind ourselves of a, of a great principle behind this reason. It's one of the most important principles in the Christian life. And if more Christians knew about it and practiced it, then they would limp less on the narrow way. Well, the principle is simply this. Live your life as one who must give an account to God. That's it. It's simple. Simply stated. Profound. Maybe not always so simply achieved. But that's the principle, and it is revolutionary. Live your life as one who must give an account to God. Now, I'm not talking about answering to God for sinful acts, no, absolutely not. Jesus paid for those, right? We don't have to answer for sinful conduct at the end of time because Jesus paid for those. God holds no sin to our account. 
I'm talking rather about behavior that amounts to a spiritual waste of time. And that goes for and that goes for full-time Christian workers just as much as it goes for nominal Christians. Those who are involved very little in ministry live with one foot in heaven and the other one on the earth. And if that's the case, then it would it would seem that only 50% of their time spent on this earth has any eternal significance whatsoever. But pastors and other full-time Christian workers are no better off in their yield when they minister aggressively and tirelessly on their own strength. That is with wrong motives or wrong principles. And in that case, they too are wasting their divine allotted time. Both groups produce very little that is of any eternal significance. Both further the cause of Christ on this earth by inches instead of by feet. They invest very little in the kingdom. We know that there will be an assessment in heaven. That's really what I'm referring to. The end of human history. Paul talks about it in no uncertain terms in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says that God will, by his assessing fire, try everything that we've done for Christ and burn up any worthless investments we've made along the way. Like wood and hay and stubble, our worthless investments are combustible. They'll just burn up. Only worthy investments, like precious stones, will stand. The reality is that some Christians will come away from that divine assessment having nothing to show for their stewardship on earth, and they will suffer great loss. Now, their salvation will be safe since since that's grounded in the merits of Christ alone. That can never be taken away. But they themselves will receive no commendation from their master. Principle, once again, Live your life as one who must give an account to God. When it's there in the fore of your brain, and as you rehearse it to yourself before every decision, you will be sure to invest wisely in the kingdom. Well, I wanted to belabor the principle, and it's worth repeating to ourselves constantly in the race of faith, because living biblically, obeying the Lord, considering him in all our ways. Frankly, it's becoming more difficult by the minute in our climate, right? I think you've, you've probably seen that. You've probably experienced that yourself. It's also a sure way to anger those who want us to follow their lead. Living biblically promises to rile family members who want us to listen to their advice instead of to God's. Living biblically... It promises to offend our work associates who expect you to to have the same goals and aspirations and work ethic as they do. And pastors are sure to incur the wrath of their own church members who would rather, rather their pastors follow the secular trends and tickle their ears than to stand on biblical principle and feed them meat. But in the end, beloved, and here's where the principle works, it's not to any of these folks that you will ever 
have to give an account at the end of time, but to God alone. That's why the principle is so important. So, as, so the, part of the, the part of the reason that we submit to godly elders is that we know that they know that they have to give an account to God for how they shepherd us. And having to answer to God makes all the difference in their ministry. And it should make all the difference for us. But let's move quickly to the second part of this reason as time is getting on. And I want to consider why, why else do we submit to godly elders? It's simply this. Their actual shepherding style I debated whether to use the word style because it can kind of um, muddy the waters a bit. But what I'm talking about here is this. The writer sums up the essence of their shepherding. And that's what I'm getting at. That's the second part of the reason why we ought to submit to godly elders. It's because of the essence of their shepherding, the kind of shepherding that they do. He says here, they keep watch over your souls. This is a ver the very thing that God holds them accountable to do. Keep watch. Now, if you look at your text, keep watch is an English translation of only one Greek word that occurs only here in the book of Hebrews or in the New Testament. It was an old word by the time the writer used it, and it would have painted the picture in the minds of his congregation of, of the arduous and often sleepless nights of the ancient watchmen of Israel. The watchman was a military guard who would keep watch over the troops, usually all throughout the night, much in the same way, you remember, as the shepherds did, the ones that received the birth announcement of Messiah. They were watching over their flocks by night, right? Sleepless nights, watching. So we're talking about sentinels. Now, military guards were not the only watchmen. God's prophets were also Watchmen. Some of the judges in the book of Judges were both, both military as well as prophets. But God himself appointed them to give oversight to his people. The classic passage on God's prophet as watchman of his people is Ezekiel 33. Listen to what God says to Ezekiel in verses 7 to 9. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word that I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you shall surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways, and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you yourself will be saved. It's a very interesting passage. According, according to what we read here, God entrusted Ezekiel with the safety of the Israelites during the exile in Babylon. Ezekiel was to give them God's instruction, a message, with the promise that if they obeyed it, they would spare themselves from the cruel treatment of their captors and eventually even death. But the thrust of this small passage, as the rest of the chapter would confirm, is that the success of the prophet depended on his faithfulness to his divine calling. Did you pick that up? Ezekiel would be a successful watchman 
simply if he conveyed God's message to the exiles accurately, whether the exiles listened to him or not. Their obedience or disobedience had no bearing on Ezekiel's success as a watchman. Only Ezekiel's obedience to God alone determined that. So if Ezekiel did not convey God's message to them accurately, or perhaps delivered a compromise message that would be popular with the exiles, but, but not accurate, or just keep quiet, not only would they suffer the consequences of his negligence, but God would hold Ezekiel accountable for every one of their deaths. Because he would be a bad watchman. We're not talking about salvation here, by the way. Don't misunderstand that. Now, it's hard to believe that the writer to the Hebrews, with, this impressive, with his impressive command of the Old Testament, didn't have Ezekiel in mind when he talks about elders whom God calls to keep watch over our souls. He uses this watchman concept and the tirelessness and conscientious activity that went with it to impress his Jewish Christian audience of just how demanding local church shepherding is. It's a lot of work. We pastors might not literally stay up all hours of the night to keep watch over your house. Although we do on occasion minister through the night at the bedside of a member who, who's been rushed to the hospital or at a home of a family who just experienced a tragedy, tragedy sure. And I've been, I've been uh, awakened many times in the middle of the night and have done just that. But the sleepless nights of the ancient military watchman really is a figure for the sober-mindedness that pastor elders need to shepherd well. That's what we're talking about. Sober-mindedness. They are awake to the needs of their members. They're careful to warn them of tempting situations, of false doctrine that comes to them dressed in truth's clothes. They, they come alongside hurting and struggling members and, and minister the word of God to them to give them help and hope. And to a significant degree, all members of the local church really are called to keep alert in this way for each other, too. Listen to Ephesians 6.18. This is something that a lot of people kind of read over. Paul says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Now, that's not just for elders. That's actually directed to all of us. All the saints are to be practicing that kind of intercession, are to be alert and pray on behalf of one another. That command, as I say, is an important one, but we emphasize, we, we see it emphasized in the ministry of the elder. The elders are especially to be about this. Richard Baxter was an English Puritan who lived in England. <clears throat> he was pastor of St. Mary All Saints Church. He published quite a bit in his day. A lot of those Puritans were prolific writers. Most of what Baxter put out was good, not all. Among his most famous work, though, was called The Reformed Pastor. Now, the title is a bit misleading. It's not about being a pastor in the Reformed faith. 
In fact, Baxter was not strictly a Calvinist. Rather, reformed has to do with a change in his own thinking. It's, it's the same idea that, that we find in phrases like reformed alcoholic or reformed gambler, reform school, economic reforms, and so on. It refers to a change in someone's thinking that leads to a change of behavior, and usually that changes for the better. Baxter had such a dramatic change of heart, and it radically reformed his ministry. The Lord convicted him on one occasion when he happened to be reading Acts chapter 20, verse 28. You say, what does that say? Here it is. Speaking to elders, Paul says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Baxter, like other ministers of his time after the heels of the Reformation, or on the heels of the Reformation, I should say, they were, they, were not keep, they were not keeping as intense and a con, as a conscientious a watch on their flocks as they were on themselves. Baxter was so convicted about this in his own, as a, and his own pastoral negligence that he wrote the Reformed Pastor in 1656. He begins by confessing his own shortfalls, and then he invites his fellow ministers in the area to repent of their pastoral negligence and show them, in the rest of the book, how to be more hands-on with their congregations, how to guard and watch after the souls of those that God has entrusted to their care. He says, quote, I do now, in, on the behalf of Christ and for the sake of his church, and the immortal souls of men beseech all the faithful ministers of Christ that they will presently and effectually fall upon this work, end quote. What Baxter argues for is exactly what the writer of the Hebrews highlights about godly elders and watching over the souls of the church. The idea of watching is a, is, it has a very pregnant meaning. If there's one word that I would use to describe the essence of pastoral ministry and this kind of, of oversight and watching, it is the Greek word nutheteo. Nutheteo. The reason I tell you the Greek word and not the translation of it is because there is no good sound word-for-word correspondent to this Greek word. No word-for-word translation. J. Adams used this word in his seminal work, Competent to Counsel, to characterize his biblical counseling. A word study on this particular term would suggest that it has three elements to it. So rather than find a word-for-word correspondent, let's understand its concept. The first element in this neuthetic activity is, to, is a recognition of an outstanding problem in the life of a believer that needs to be addressed and solved by influencing the mind of the believer. That would be done, of course, through instruction from the Word of God. This is what we know as renewing the mind in order to bring about change of behavior. Mind is also a synonym for the heart. We're talking about the real you, the control center of your life. That needs to be 
convinced with the word of God, um, a, a heart change, which will then bring about a change of behavior. The next element uh, is <clears throat> of newthetic activity is the addressing, uh, after, uh, after the influencing of the mind, um, would be uh, the means of doing that, which is verbal confrontation. So we see a problem in the life of a believer, we know it needs to be addressed, and we want to bring about change by, by influencing the mind of the person. How do we do that? That's the second element, by verbal confrontation. We come alongside, we point out what's wrong, we point out what's right, and we begin to counsel and train in godliness. In other words, confronting a problem with the word of God in hopes of influencing the person's mind to bring about change is done by means of verbal counsel. The third element is the motive behind this this whole verbal counsel, this whole interaction, which is really the best interest of the Christian with the problem. It is a loving act that seeks the best interest of the brother or sister. So it is done out of love. That's really the only way it ought to be done. And while this kind of activity characterizes biblical counseling, it's by no means unique to it. As Adams himself pointed out, it's an activity that characterizes all important areas of oversight. Parenting, for example, demands this activity. In Ephesians 6 verse 4, Paul commands parents to bring up their children in the discipline and neuthetic counsel of the Lord. That's the word nuthetel. We do that by addressing each situation in the child's life that you want to help the child with. Another area of oversight is what we know to be one anothering. We've talked about this a lot. That's not a biblical term. It's a man-made one to describe the responsibility that each of us have to each other. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, that is the members, with all wisdom, teaching and, here's the word, neuthetically confronting one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Everyone has a responsibility to engage in this kind of activity, this neuthetic activity. When it comes to pastoral ministry, Adams makes the point that this neuthetic confrontation is peculiarly the work of the ministry. In other words, it it is especially the work of shepherds to come alongside those with problems and bring correction from the scripture that is designed to bring about a change of heart and with it a change of behavior out of love. Paul says in Colossians 1.23, this is to pastors, we proclaim him, neuthetically confronting every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. What a wonderful activity neutheteo is. It's really about being our brothers and sisters' keeper, isn't it? Keeping watch over their souls, being careful to come alongside them and give them what they need, godly encouragement, rebuke if necessary, admonishments, exhortation, help. 
And whatever it is, it administ it's administered in love and for the best interest of the one being counseled, using the word of God lovingly to bring correction, change, hope, and training in righteousness. Now, you may be shocked to know that many pastors in America have no idea of this kind of shepherding, and of those who do, very few of them know how to do it. Most don't know how to take the word of God into the lives of of their members, and, and give them help and hope to shepherd them. I kid you not. Four years of seminary doesn't teach them this. But that's not really a problem for them, or for the members of their flock for that matter, because both would not want to participate in this kind of shepherding. Do you hear what I said? For the pastor, it's too much work. It demands too much of his time. They don't, want to get, they don't get paid nearly enough to deal with the pushback from those that they try to shepherd this way. That's why we have a policy here at Pilgrim Counseling Ministries for members of other churches who want to receive biblical counseling that insist that, we, it insists that, that they bring one of their pastors of their church with them for counseling. Why do we insist on this? Because we believe that all pastors should be shepherding their members this way. And if they're not, then they can sit in and learn how. But as I say, many want no part of this kind of activity. And the excuses they give for not accompanying their hurting members abound. Counseling is not my calling, Pastor. Of course, biblical counseling is not a calling. Shepherding is a calling, of which counseling is a vital part, along with preaching and teaching. Counseling is not my gift. That's another excuse. But biblical counseling is not a gift. It's a responsibility of all Christians, especially leadership. Well, I'm, I'm too busy to counsel. If a pastor is too busy to shepherd his own sheep, under his care, he has no business being a pastor, and his members should find another church with biblical shepherds. And I don't say that too lightly. I mentioned that Richard Baxter made significant reforms in his pastoring. One example of his determination to be a good watchman was his resolution to visit every family in his congregation once a year. Oh, and by the way, Richard Baxter had 800-plus members in his church. He explains in the Reformed pastor that he and a trusted deacon, quote, set apart two whole days a week to go over the, to go over the parish once a year, being about 800 families, having about 15 families a week to deal with. 15 families a week divided by two days meant that they started at 9 and ended at 9. He says that in his book. Can you imagine 30 families a week? And these visits were not to shoot the breeze. They weren't having light-hearted conversations over pie and coffee. He would ask after their spiritual lives, how they're, how they're developing, after their work ethic, and, and their witness to Christ in the workplace, after their parenting, the, what portions of the Bible were they reading in their private devotions? How often did they have family worship with their kids? What, what was their struggles in their spiritual walk? How might they counsel them? This kind of conscientious, caring activity that Baxter engaged in 
was, a, was close to the biblical model of shepherding. And for members, we just talked about pastors, for members of many local churches, most are only too happy to avoid this kind of interaction as well. It's too invasive. We can be sure that the Jewish Christian members of this first century church of the book of Hebrews were on the receiving end of this kind of biblical oversight from godly and conscientious pastoral staff. And if this congregation was drifting and as spiritually anemic as the writer tells us it was back in chapter 5, it's doubtful that they would have any problems with a permissive, lax leadership that took a hands-off approach, right? They'd have no problem with that. Now, we can assume safely that their leadership was anything but lax. They were doing their best to minister in a biblical way, and these members were obviously resisting it. Some commentators suggest that the godly shepherds of this church sent out an SOS to the writer to help, to help them reel in the drifting congregation. We have no evidence of that from the text, but the implication seems pretty strong. They were exasperated at the continued fallout. So as a last resort, they send a distress signal to the writer. And it, and it makes a lot of sense. There are instances elsewhere in the New Testament of conscientious Christians reaching out to people like Paul and John and Peter with concerns about their church and asking them to comment. The most notable one is 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is answering the questions that they had written him about. He says in verse 1, Now concerning these things about which you wrote. In other contexts, there, there was not any written questions sent, from a particular congregation, but its members had made contact with, say, Paul or Peter or John in order to give them an update. Now, this is the case in 3 John chapter 3, verse 4. John says, I, It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faith to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. We also may assume safely that if none from other congregations actually wrote or made contact with the apostles and prominent pastors like Jude or James, it's obvious from their writings that they did get a report somehow. And that prompted them to write 1 Corinthians 5.1. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you. 1 Corinthians 11.18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. 2 Thessalonians 3.11, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. So the writer of Hebrews, he calls this Jewish Christian congregation to submit to their elders who shepherds biblically, teaching them doctrine, and when necessary, reproving and correcting and then training them in all righteousness. And to top it off, they do this aggressively and tirelessly, not only because they care for them, but because they knew that at the end of time, they would have to stand before God and give an account of their stewardship. What better reason do we need 
to appreciate those who diligently labor among us and have charge over us in the Lord and give us instruction. To esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And to consider them worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. I ask those questions rhetorically. Obviously, we are to appreciate and esteem them very highly and to see to their financial needs. And that prepares us for how we should minister to them. How we should minister to them, you might ask. Well, that sounds odd, doesn't it? Members ministering to shepherds? Churchgoers see this often as a one-way street. I don't know if you realize that. Shepherds care for for and minister to us. We don't minister to them. Oh, but we do. In the next sentence in verse 17, we'll see next time that that's really a two-way street. And we'll consider how we care for our leadership. Until then, I would ask that you examine your heart this morning, beloved. Ask yourself, if you have a submissive spirit to local church leadership, to their teaching, their application, and their spiritual direction that they give to you and in which they are the direction they're taking the church. We should examine ourselves. Godly leadership. We're doing it right. Teaching from their mouths that we are fully persuaded and convinced is biblical and right. Do we have a submissive heart? If we don't, we are not really submissive to God either. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you that you have given us your word, a word from Hebrews, and we can see how pertinent it is. And we pray, O God, that as we depart from this place, we would go through the week with these principles we've mentioned in mind, especially that we would that we would consider how we must answer to you at the end of time for all that we do. And know that that is a worthy principle by which we might measure our leadership and why we should submit to them. For the same reason, we thank you, O God, that you have given us your word on this matter and have made it clear to us that we could understand and and how we are to conduct ourselves, both as leaders and as members. We pray then, Lord, that as we continue to forge ahead in this good fight, as we develop our relationship between leadership and members, as we continue to grow closer and more intimate, and as our little body continues to become more cohesive, we pray that you would be pleased to work through us in this part of the world, that you would be pleased to add to our number as you see fit, and that you especially would be honored and glorified by our actions and that you would use what we do to benefit the church, the body of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.